Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Scott Livingston with Leave Your Mark. I'm interviewing Rod McDonald today, and with over 30 years of experience in the field of wellness and self-improvement, Rod is a leading authority in personal and professional change. In addition to being the CEO of the Certified Coaches Federation, Rod is the founder of Indestructible Human, his own personal brand, delivering transformative life and business coaching. As a speaker and author, Rod helps people be their best through spoken and written word. Rod has spoken at events around the world and co-wrote the best-selling Foundations of Professional Personal Training, used by more fitness professionals in Canada than any other book. Rod has also contributed hundreds of articles to numerous magazines over 15 years. Rod is also a semi-retired multi-sport athlete, four-time Ironman competitor, cross-Canada cyclist, former competitive rower, 200-hour RYT yogi, proud husband and father of two, and soon-to-be three children. Congratulations, sir. The reason I've invited Rod on Leave Your Mark is because I've seen, since meeting him much nearer to the beginning of his career, a man dedicated to inspiring and changing lives and be believing his story should be heard by my listeners. Welcome, Rod. Thank you very much, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. It's, uh, it's an interesting... Um, circle of life in a sense because uh you and i met i'm actually trying to remember when we met but it must have been sometime in the early 90s or maybe even late 80s kind of thing uh, back yeah, in Montreal. i think it was i think you're right around the the right time it was uh late 80s early 90s at the ymca and yeah. you were definitely one of my early mentors uh and influencers because uh, I remember you you came into the YMCA and it was the context of of becoming certified with their certification program and um, you know you were one of the people early on who I looked up to and and as many of us did looked up to as somebody who knew what they were doing and could convey that in um, in really simple terms so that we could all be better doing what we were doing. Thanks, I appreciate that. Yeah. And- as I said uh, in my introduction, you know, I, you and I have not spent a lot of time together over the years since, but we've always sort of maintained a mutual, I guess, uh, admiration of one another's uh, trajectories in life. And uh, you've obviously done a lot of really interesting things, which we're going to get into here. One of the things that I noticed actually in asking you what your birthday was, it said September 11th. Mm-hmm. Where were you on September 11th, 2001? What were you doing? Well, it's it's interesting you you bring that up because um, anytime my birthday becomes part of a conversation, whether I'm giving information over the phone for you know registering for something or somebody I meet who happens to ask me, I, I I'll tell them September 11th, and and then their response almost uh, invariably is, "Oh, I'm so sorry," <laughs> and and you know not to not in any way to diminish the sure. you know the severity of what happened on that day. Um, you know, I, I sort of jokingly say, well, it was my birthday first, you know, before that <laughs> awful thing happened. Yeah. And, um, the, the truth is to answer your question, I was in Montreal at the time and, um, it was, uh, a situation I remember I had gotten up early. I can't remember if I was rowing or, or coaching rowing at the time, but I'd gotten up early and then I had gotten back home and I was having a nap as I often did because I would get up at four o'clock in the morning and do my thing and then get back around uh, just around seven thirty or eight, and then my dad, uh, my late father, called me and um, and told me that a, a plane flew into the World Trade Center, and I turned on the TV and just in time to uh, to watch the second plane hit, and it was uh, it was surreal as it was for all of us who who saw that happen on that day, and um, uh, so it was. It was a, a, a weird sort of situation, and it and it redefined uh, my birthday. Um, yeah. But I, I think that it it actually, in a in an odd turnaround sort of way, it actually over time, over many years, turned into uh, a bit of a a bit of an interesting blessing, if you will. I don't know if that's the right way to describe it, because you know when you when we have learned, many of us have read or watched documentaries and things of, of what led up to that and understanding geopolitics a bit more than I did then. I think it's, um, it's a very interesting um, aspect of, of North American geopolitics and foreign policy, mostly for the United States and, and the repercussions of that. Yeah, it is kind of an interesting circle around and uh, where you're headed in your life now. So I think we'll, 
roll back into where where you are now a little bit later in the show. But um, I know you're a Montrealer uh, by birth, and but you haven't been there for a good period of time now, about 15 years or so. Uh, what do you miss about Montreal? You know, my mom still lives in Montreal. Uh, in fact, as we as we speak here, I am in Toronto, and my mom actually is uh, is, is here as well because we had our um, our baby shower this past weekend. But um, but I miss uh, my family because my mom and my brother live in Montreal still, and my best friends uh, still live in Montreal. So it's more about the relationships that I miss. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I see Montreal and Toronto as two quite different cities uh, in many ways. And I think they both have some incredible aspects to each of them. Um, I don't really miss Montreal as a city as much as, as a place where I have relationships. Right. A place that you look back fondly with uh, the people that you connected with while you were there. Yeah. Um, your, you mentioned your mom. What was your mom's uh, influence on your growth and development as a person? Like where, where did she impact you the most? Uh, you know, that's a, it's a, that's a big question because, um, you know, I, I look up to my mom as a bit of a hero because uh, my parents split when I was about five years of age. My brother was eight at the time. I have one brother. And, um, and we both reacted to that situation differently, as children often do in those kinds of situations. And uh, my mom raised these two boys that were, um, you know, boys turning into teenagers, turning into young men. And we did see our dad uh, most weekends. And we had, um, you know, a sometimes challenging relationship with him. But um, as as all boys do, I think, with their dads at certain points. And uh, my mom just would would sacrifice everything for us. And, and that meant she worked uh, a more than full-time job and did um, whatever was required to um, keep us happy and healthy and well-fed and and uh, I look back at that time, and I and being a parent now, I I really profoundly respect the sacrifices that that she made, and um, and admire her for for that strength that she had to to handle. You know, I look back at myself. I have a 13 year old son now, and and I look back to that time in my life and how tough I must have been to handle for um, for a single mom and. Uh, and I respect that. So she was she was quite important uh, formatively for me. It's interesting. I was reading your the information that you sent to me, and I actually see some interesting uh, connections between the two of us. I, I grew up in a divorced home as well, a little bit later than you. Um, and I'm curious. You mentioned that it sort of affected your brother and you differently, and it certainly affected my brother and I differently. And, and how did you see that as uh, the difference of effect on both of you? Well. You know, I, I feel like um, from my perspective, and, and I pre-frame it that way because I think that he would probably have a, a slightly different perspective on it, which is equally um, valid, mm-hmm. that um, he seemed to be more angry about the situation and more angry at things in general. Uh, and I think that actually uh, became fodder for him to, to, to seek uh, understanding and in a different way. And he actually, you know, fast forward to where he is today. He's a, a professor, a doctor of philosophy teaching, uh, at the university of Montreal and, um, and has been incredibly successful in his own right, uh, in, uh, in the world of philosophy. And I think part of that was probably driven by a, a desire to understand people. And, and he and I have both sort of ended up in that space, but in very, from very different, um, sort of paths to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, for myself, I actually, uh, I believe that it, that it influenced me to become more sensitive because as I saw some of the, the struggles that I observed uh, that my mom experienced, I became more sensitive to seeing and hearing and picking up on, um, you know, the very subtle indicators of, of stress in voice and body language and um, and feeling a desire and an empathetic desire to um, make those things better. So you know, there are things that I that I did that I look back on. My mom kept and has continues to keep um, copious photo albums of you know we have you know probably half a dozen photo albums with 
thousands of photos from over the years. And, and there's pictures of when uh, I'd see my mom going through a particularly hard time where I would, you know, make her a homemade card or a birthday cake or, you know, just something to try to, to shift the energy. Mm-hmm. And, wow. um, and I think that that was a precursor to, uh, you know, what led me on to my own curiosity for why people do what they do and how they cope with, uh, with those situations. It's interesting, um, listening to you because, um, it segues very well into one of the things that I, um, like to do in my podcast, which is I, I ran into a book. Uh, I've been divorced twice myself and I know you've been divorced once, which uh, I may circle back to in a bit, but, um, I found a book after my second uh, divorce that was called The Day You Were Born, and it uh, was a fascinating um, introspective uh, view on on uh, astrology and numerology, which I've never been a crazy fan about, but I always have, had sort of a, an interest in. And uh, so I picked up this book, and, and uh, I had this deep connection to the purpose, and essentially what it did was it took your birth date, and it combined some of the sort of thoughts around astrology with numerology, and I found my purpose in that book. So you, it's interesting, the timing of our talk, because just last week I introduced, interviewed the ice dancer, Scott Moyer and Scott Moyer's birthday is September 2nd and yours is September 11th. And that makes the two of you of Virgo twos. So you combine the number one and one and you make two. So I'm going to read you your purpose from that book. And I read it to him and he was kind of floored by it. And just listening to you say what you said a couple of seconds ago, you're going to understand why I'm reading it now. To use your acute sensitivity, feelings of difference and fears of abandonment to gain insight into yourself, become creative and bond with others. Carl Jung says the spiritual self must never lose its sense of utter dependence on the invisible. And I thought it was very profound that you talked about um, that connection with your sensitivity with your mom and stuff. So I'm just wondering how that resonates with you when you hear that. Wow. I, I have, I actually have goosebumps on my, <laughs> on my arms right now. I appreciate you, you sharing that with me because it's, you know, I, I feel like I have been on a, on a very winding path towards understanding both myself and understanding other people. And which, which links to, you know, we sometimes we talk about what's what's one's purpose, and I know that's a, a big theme in, in these podcasts that you're doing. And and um, part of my purpose is to simply just make the world a better place. And mm-hmm. if you know, it, it actually aligns with something my dad used to used to tell me when I was when I was a boy, which was you know, if you visit somebody's home or you borrow something, make sure you return it in at least as good, if not a better condition. And that might mean, you know, if you're, if you're sitting at your friend's, you know, dinner table, when you're 15 years old, then when you get up from the dinner table, you straighten your chair and you straighten somebody else's chair if you need to, to, to make it just a little bit better than when you showed up. And, and I think that resonates for me. And, and that message that you're sharing from that book, uh, I re- made a note because I, I now I want to go out and, and read it. Um, I think that there is a lot of alignment there, and I don't know if it's um, you know how one might make those connections and how how ultimately accurate they are. But certainly, mm-hmm. there's there is a lot of um, affinity that I'm that I'm feeling towards that description. Yeah, it's strange. Uh, every time I do this, uh, it's almost uh, kind of eerie how much uh, the person on the other side connects to it, which is uh, quite strange. But uh, I'm going to keep doing it because it's fodder for good conversation. <laughs> at the end of the day. I mean, uh, it almost it almost sounds like it was a setup because yeah. because of what I said, and then you shared that. But but uh, you know, for the listeners, I, I've never heard of that book, and <laughs> and you know, although Scott asked me what my birth date was before doing this podcast, he didn't know any of the other information. Um, so it was really interesting. Well, I shook my head when I saw that you were a Virgo too. And I was, you know, just talking to Scott the other day. And I went, wow, this is crazy. Yeah. Um, you you mentioned your dad, you know, your dad, you had a more of a, a distant oriented relationship with what was his impact on your, on you growing up and, 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 you know, how you've de- developed personally. You know, as I mentioned, uh, my brother and I would see our dad typically on the weekends, um, which became more difficult as we became teenagers because once we became mobile unto ourselves, you know, with our own bicycles, which 
you know, my mom, uh, we didn't have a, a car at home, so we'd either take public transit or, or hop on our bicycles, and, and which became, you know, uh, a feeder for me for a lot of my energy outlet uh, as I was a young person. But um, I'd take my bike anywhere. And, um, and so uh, we would see our dad on the weekends. And as we got older, he, um, he was the person that he was. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'll, I'll come back to sort of my, my retrospective on that, but he, he was our dad and he was a good dad and he would, uh, tell us stories and, and teach us lessons along the way. Some of them hidden and some of them more overt. And I credit him actually with, um, the fact that, uh, I'm a pretty handy person and, you know, so, the home that I live in here in Toronto is an older home and it, it requires a, a lot of upkeep. And, um, so everything from a little bit of electrical to plumbing, to plastering, to painting, to, you know, I, like on the weekend, I replaced our kitchen faucet, you know, all because of the things that my dad, uh, taught us, um, over the years. And so I give him a lot of credit for some of those, those life skills that we acquired. Um, and then, into my late teens and early twenties, there was a period when I was actually quite angry with my dad because I tried to understand what happened between my dad and my mom. And, and so I, you know, becoming a man, I confronted my dad uh, about, you know, what happened and wanted to learn more from his perspective because I learned a little bit from my mom and, um, and he wouldn't share it with me. And Mm. at the time that made me even angrier because you know, I thought it was, you know, being his son, I thought I had a right to know that in hindsight, you know, sure, I I felt like I had a right, but it was his life and his time. And it was his choice whether or not he wanted to share that with me. Um, I don't know how things might have been different had he shared his memories of of that time with me. Mm. But um, after that, you know, fast forwarding another, say, decade or so into my early 30s, I, I was really exploring uh, my own identity and human behavior in general. And, um, and I discovered something within myself that put a lot of perspective onto uh, my relationship with my dad. And that was simply that we all do the best that we can at any point in our lives with whatever resources and education and experience that we had up to that point. And, you know, my dad, if, if I could have had a, a dad who acted a bit differently at times, um, you know, there's a part of me that says, I, I wish he had come to my some of my rowing regattas, which he didn't do, or some of my other athletic stuff, which he didn't do. But he did the best he could with the situation at, at hand. And um, that actually, it, it dramatically softened my feelings about my dad because I knew at that time that was uh, when my son had, was first born in the early 2000s and and I knew that I was struggling and um, my relationship with my wife at the time wasn't great and uh, I realized hey I, I'm just doing the best I can and that made me re- reflect on my dad and thinking well maybe he he was just simply doing the best that he could and and I wondered why that was. And my reflection went even further to say, well, I wonder if that was formed by his parents. And I wonder if they just simply did the best that they could where they were and at the time that they were. And, and, it, and that uh, helped form a, a, a greater depth of sensitivity towards everybody. Because I think we all do the best that we can, typically with good intentions, even if the behavior isn't always good the intention is, is almost always good in that we're trying to satisfy some need that we have. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, nobody, this, ha- go ahead. I was going to say there's a beautiful, um, sort of finding that you got there. And I wanted to pivot off it a little bit in the yeah. sense that you now are dad and, uh, you know, as a father uh, of myself, I look back at, you now have the perspective of an adult, but as a father, when you look back at your parents' situations and the choices they made, and it's a, it's a wholly different lens that um, you look at things with. Has it changed the viewpoint of your parents both in some ways, being a dad it, yourself now? It, it has, absolutely. And, you know, I think that um, 
before a person has a child, they have an idea of what it's like to be a parent because they were in some way, shape or form, they were parented and uh, they see other images, whether they be in TV and movies or books and so on. And so they form at either a conscious or subconscious level, um, an idea of what it is to be a parent. But as it is in most areas of life, you don't really know until you're thrust into that situation. And when you are a, a parent-to-be in the month leading up to the birth and then during the birth and then thereafter, your whole world shifts and and you you just can't possibly understand that until you are in that situation. And the, the funny thing I often get, which admittedly I said at one point myself, was, you know, it's sort of a dismissal of it when somebody says that, oh, your life, your whole life is going to change. Like, yeah, yeah, no, I understand. I have a dog. And, <laughs> and, and it's like, you know, you know, because dog owners and I guess to some extent cat owners and, and other pet owners are like, well, yeah, they're my furry children. And, and so they sort of say, yeah, I know what it's like. I have to get up and I have to feed the dog and I have to take the dog out for a while. It's like, yeah, you don't have any idea. <laughs> and <laughs> that's okay, you know. And and so I think there's there's honestly um, uh, there is a learning which when you, when you put it in perspective, we're talking about generation upon generation, going back hundreds of thousands, in fact, millions of years of evolution of of human beings repeating this same uh, this same process of uh, you know being parented to becoming parents. And, and then, you know, becoming the grandparent and then the children have kids and so on and so forth. It's a, it's a repeating cycle. And it, it actually uh, continued sort of as an expansion. What I said about my dad, it's, it's an expansion to understand that we all come from our parents who came from our grandparents and great grandparents and so on. Going back all those years, thousands and millions of years, and to consider that, you know, how fortunate most of us are. And, and I, you know, admittedly, depending on who's living listening to this and where they are in the world, they may not be as fortunate as we are in, in North America and Canada, but the majority of people in what's, what's sometimes referred to as the quote unquote first world, um, you know, we are so fortunate compared to the struggles that are even sometimes our parents, but are certainly our grandparents and great grandparents had to suffer through no power, no indoor plumbing, no electricity, um, no indoor heating or air conditioning. And, and to be able to raise families and in some cases, you know, my dad was one of five. My mom was was one of uh, seven. My grandmother was one of, I think it was thirteen. You know, to imagine that without those um, those things to make our lives more comfortable, it makes it actually informs a lot of my appreciation for just the you know it's just the gratitude to to say wow, like how fortunate are we to live in a world at this time when our ancestors didn't have that opportunity and how hard they had to work to make this opportunity available to us. I'm curious, um, off of that is, uh, your viewpoint on the concept of failure versus success and, and really the struggle of life and, and, and the value of the struggle of life. Um, I've had conversations with people. Uh, well, I'm, I want to hear your thoughts before I give you my, my viewpoint, but go, go ahead. Well, you know, I, I think that uh, this is in this realm of uh, of human understanding and, human, and understanding human behavior, and and in the you know in the bookshelf of self development and self help and and all of that stuff. You know, there, there's uh, a lot of this discussion around. You know, is there such a thing as failure? And and I don't know who first coined the phrase or or uh, paraphrased it, but it's uh, you know there is no failure. There's just learning. Mm-hmm. And uh, we look at everything we do in life with the life experience and education, formal and informal, that we've been given up to that point in life. And as you know, as, as, as all of us know, in this realm of, of seeking understanding, we know that uh, the same situation will be handled differently by every person who undergoes that situation, whether it's a, a cancer diagnosis or a car crash or a roof that's leaking or whatever the case may be, whatever challenge one is facing, everyone will react to it differently. And that's because we're all different. And so uh, I will choose 
to frame failure as just another thing that happens that I will seek to learn from. Easier said than done, certainly after the fact. At the moment, certainly I, I will suffer whatever, you know, um, whatever I will suffer from that, whether it's, you know, falling off a bicycle or, or, you know, scraping my arm while I'm trying to fix something at home or whatever. But, um, but I think that to contextualize that situation, which, which some might call failure, but to, but to reframe it or recontextualize it as learning, I think is massively powerful because it, it shifts the energy from a negative to at least a neutral, if not a positive. And I think that's really important uh, as we go through life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've, I've sort of shaped it in my, my mind's eye as failure for me is when you don't learn Um, Mm -hmm. the concept of, of something not happening that you had an expectation to have happen or we're working towards and it doesn't, and you don't, um, learn from that, that to me is true failure. When you do learn, it's just opportunity for, you know, a change in, in tactic or tech, te- technical or whatever it is that you're going to do. So, yeah, I like your spin for sure. Um, going back a bit, you, you were a, um, competitive athlete. Um, what in you drove you to become a competitive athlete and to, and to sort of express that in yourself? You know, the the whole aspect of athletics for me is was a very interesting path because it's different than many of my peers and and what many athletes go through. Because neither of my parents were athletic, uh, whether it be recreationally or competitively, and so I didn't grow up with that in the home. And further to that, neither of them were spectators of of sports, so we didn't watch sports on on TV either. So. The only time there was any sort of, you know, acknowledgement of sports from that perspective uh, was either just simply at school when we were, when we had to, you know, participate in things at school in phys ed class, or maybe sometimes when there was something really special going on like the Olympics. But so I, I really came around to more formalized competitive sport much later in life. And in fact, um, you know, as, as I alluded to earlier, recreationally, I would use my bicycle for, for transportation and as an outlet for energy. I used to ride up and down the Lachine Canal on my, on my bike as a teenager um, at the time, not with a helmet and, and, you know, with a shirt off. And I was one of these, you know, who I thought I was a cool 13-year-old just riding up and down the Lachine Canal. You know, uh, I think it was 14 kilometers at a stretch and I could, I'd see how, how many times I could go back and forth before I got so tired I had to go home. Or the, or the sun was going down. But, um, you know, when I uh, was in my late teens, early 20s, um, actually, let me back up a moment. So around the, the time I was in that sort of early teens, 13, 14, 15, um, we lived in a, in a home in NDG. We were in the, the upper part of the duplex. Our landlord had two older boys than my brother and I, and they had in the basement a set of weights uh, you know, the old weeder weights, the, the, the vinyl coated cement weights um, that, that many of us sort of started out with. And, and they had the old weeder um, uh, exercise system posters on the wall with the different exercises you're supposed to do. And I, I can actually still remember that moment when, um, when one, of the, one of the kids asked, you know, offered for me to pick up a weight. And I remember that moment, putting my hands on that knurled bar that you know with the with the mm-hmm. rough grip so you could hold on to it properly and, and feeling the cold steel in my hands and and struggling to lift it off the ground because I think he had set it up so heavy that he thought I was gonna not be able to lift it but being 13 or 14 I, I had to lift it um much to the chagrin of my uh intervertebral discs I'm sure but um but <laughs> but I got it off the ground and and I felt that sense of accomplishment for the first time and and that, that was actually the, the seed to what became my, my fascination with strength training, which, you know, with the way that I pursued it was not a sport. It wasn't a competitive weightlifting uh, or Olympic lifting. It was just to see, you know, how strong I could get. And so fast forwarding um, a chunk of time, um, I pursued sport more recreationally with my friends asked me to participate in something. Um, and then I was in my early 20s and decided to go back to school. 
And um, this was going to McGill University. I was, I think, 25 or 26 at the time. I had been away from school for about four or five years and wanted to go back to school and get my uh, phys ed degree from McGill University because I, at that time, I had decided that, that fitness uh, was the business or the industry that I wanted to be in. And I thought, well, if I'm going to go back to school, I really want to have as complete an experience as possible. And so I thought of all the different sports that I might be able to play uh, at university. And every time I came up with something that I had an interest in, I realized I didn't have the skill level to play. So I couldn't play baseball. I couldn't play football. I couldn't play soccer because I didn't grow up playing those sports. Mm. And even if I had a, a, a semblance of the fitness required, you know, the speed or agility or whatnot, um, I didn't have the skill. And lo and behold, at the YMCA, uh, there were a couple of people who were rowers. And they said, you know, universities have novice rowing programs. And this is one of the most unique things about university sports is that you have a novice division, which means you, you can't have, have competed in the sport prior to that. I mean, you, in the novice category, you could have competed at, at uh, high school, but you couldn't have competed at the university level. Mm. And so uh, you could have somebody who had never been in a rowing shell, which was my case, who could try out and make the team. And so that summer leading up to, um, to, to that year and trying out, I busted my butt on that, you know, concept two rowing ergometer, um, under the watchful eye of, of a couple of those people that, that, uh, that knew I was training for it. And I went from hating it, which most people do when they first get on that machine to, to learning to love it because I had a, a, a an end goal in mind. And, um, it was one of the toughest things that I'd done up to that point, and I made that novice team, and that was certainly a, a different arc that um, that presented itself in my life. So that was that was the sort of first formal sport experience that I had, um, which actually was a was a bit of a precursor to how I got into Ironman. But I'll I can share that with you later if we get to that. Mm -hmm. So it was. The sort of the weightlifting and the, the fitness and things, these are the things that kind of drove you into um, what you got into at the YMCA and, and the fitness side of your professional career was sort of born of that or were they sort of symbiotic at the same time? I think they were symbiotic because um, I was originally lifting weights for myself to see how strong I could get you know, uh, as a bit of an older teenager into my, you know, 16, 17, 18 years of age, um, it did turn into the sort of, you know, typical male, let's see how big my muscles can get, mm -hmm. uh, and how strong I can get. So it was more, you know, ego driven at that point. You know, I, I wanted to, as many of us did at the time, I wanted to see if I could, if I could bench two plates and then if I could bench three plates and, uh, you know, if I could deadlift, you know, 400 pounds and then 500 pounds and, and how much I could squat and so on. And, and it was more ego driven than, than anything else. Cause it wasn't for the purpose of being good at a sport. It was simply to see how strong I could get. Um, mm -hmm. so it was a, it was a, it was a journey of self-discovery, ego driven, but, but still self-discovery. Very similar path. I built my own gym in the basement with two by fours, made a power <laughs> rack, out of bought pulleys and created my own lat pull down and all this that's, kind of stuff. And that's amazing. Crazy. Um, segue forward, you got involved in a, in a beginnings of an organization called CanFitPro and were very dynamically involved in the growth and development of what really has kind of become the leadership organization in Canada around the fitness industry, you know, what was that journey um, about for you? What was it like for you? Like uh, you were obviously there when it sort of got rolling and, and were a big uh, part of its growth and development it must've been quite the learning experience for you. You know, it was uh, my time at CanFit Pro started uh, actually before I worked uh, in a full-time capacity with Camper Pro. So just to, to create some context, mm -hmm. you know, Camper Pro started in 1993 in London, Ontario. And um, it was at its very earliest stages, uh, a formalized opportunity for employees, instructors and trainers um, at Good Life Fitness to have a place to go to learn and to offer that same learning to other people from other 
clubs and businesses and studios and so on. And um, I wasn't aware of Cantrip Pro in its in its first few years. And then somewhere around 1997, I believe, maybe 1998, um, I had heard about through, at the time, it was the uh, the weight room coordinator at the Y, uh, Elizabeth Rohde, if you remember her. Mm-hmm. Um, she had told me about this conference in, in Toronto. And uh, it was going to be the first time it was at the Metro Toronto Convention Center, because prior to that, it had been in London for a few years, and then at some other hotel ballrooms and things in Toronto, but the first time at the Convention Center. And... Um, so 1998 was the first time I went down to Toronto from Montreal to be a, a delegate at the Canfra Pro conference. And, and I remember uh, quite distinctly coming down that escalator um, and that convention center, for those that haven't been there, um, it goes about eight floors deep underground. And uh, I remember coming down that escalator into the depths of the bowels of, of downtown Toronto into this convention center and seeing my tribe essentially (laughs) you know to to be in a place where everybody was passionate about exercise and fitness and performance and you know different aspects of the tribes within tribes so the people more interested in the nutrition aspect or the people who are more the group fitness instructors versus the personal trainers and the physiologists you know the len kravitzes of the world and you know uh, michael yusuf and all those guys and then there was the inspirational guys like matt church and you know, you know all the the different people that um, that were early influencers of mine, or I should say, later influencers of mine. Um, you know, I, I got to know who they were and got to to meet many of them. And um, so, at that time, the Camper Pro had just launched their certification program, which they didn't have until nineteen ninety eight. Um, and they had launched first the FIS, the Fitness Instructor Specialist or Group Fitness Program, and then subsequently, shortly thereafter, the PTS, the Personal Training Specialist Certification. And um, and I became, I went back to Montreal, but I became one of the Canfra Pro Pro Trainers, so one of the people teaching the course in Montreal for Personal Training Specialist, the PTS Certification. And I did that for a few years. Uh, at the same time as I was teaching the YMCA FIT, Fitness Instructor Training, certification that you had you know come into several times to be a guest speaker at mm-hmm. and so that was my early sort of introduction to Cantrip Pro and early involvement with Cantrip Pro and then uh, around 2002 um, there was a job posting for general manager at Cantrip Pro and uh, along the way I had acquired some work experience some management work experience uh, at different companies and organizations and, um, and I thought this would be great. I could combine my passion for fitness with my, with my work experience in management. And I applied for that job. I, I came down to Toronto and, and, and interviewed and, and I, uh, I got the job. And so 2002, uh, I moved at the time with my wife who had been married to only for a couple of years. Um, our son hadn't been born yet. And, uh, we moved to Toronto much to her chagrin, but I convinced her that if, if she would just give it two or three years, that if she didn't like it, we could move back. Uh, turns out she was the one who reconnected with a whole pile of her friends and had a huge social circle to, to connect with. And, and my, my social circle was Canfit Pro. So, <laughs> um, you know, it was, it was a, an incredible experience uh, at the time because at the time Canfit Pro only had about five or 6,000 members. And uh, only about three conferences, I think the Toronto conference, Montreal conference, and maybe there was one out in Victoria the first couple of years of the Vancouver conference, uh, which firstly was in Victoria, and maybe the St. John's conference out in Newfoundland. But, um, but it, was a, it was an amazing time because while there were some other great organizations that had uh, preceded Canfit Pro, Kane and um, CSEP certainly, and a few others, um, you know, Cantor Pro had this agility that some of the other organizations didn't seem to have, which was, you know, if we if we found there was a need, then we would we would create the solution to that need, and we would do it quickly, uh, not always with the absolute best quality. I would say in hindsight, but um, but many many successful entrepreneurs would say, you know what, let's let's fix this let's let's fix the solution, let's create the solution, and then we'll continue to improve upon it after the fact. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got to work with a lot of incredible people over the years as a result of that. 
and um, and then you know it carried on for many many years. Yeah, the organization I believe is turning twenty five years old this year, right? It's yeah, uh, it is anniversary. When you see that now that you're away from it. And you look at it from a, I know you're doing a lot of personal life coaching and things, which uh, is probably a good pivot time for talking about that. But um, when you see an organization and you watched, you were part of its growth and development, and you think of that either as a person or as an organization or a business, a lot of people get stuck sometimes in the beginnings or at some points in, a, in any organizational growth um, on the perception of you know, their, their change. Sometimes when you look back, you realize the monumental climb you've, you've made. And how does looking back on that also provide you perspective when you're coaching somebody who wants to try to achieve something in how you incrementally and, and process orient, you know, yourself so that you're just sort of taking small steps and you're able to look back and see just how far you've climbed. You know, it's it's a very it's a great question because it requires uh, either the reconnection with uh, appreciation that one has had, or or maybe appreciation for the first time. You know, I've done a lot of consideration of, about my time uh, at CanFit Pro, and you know, it was 15 years that I was there, and I know that we, as an organization, launched or helped launch the careers of tens of thousands of people because they would go through our certifications and, and carry on from there, whether it's just with that certification or our hope was always that they would carry on to, to other uh, education beyond that. And I have a, a profound sense of gratitude for having had the opportunity to, to, to be on that journey with that organization, with the people within that organization Um it had its its natural ups and downs and easier times and better times and not so great times as happens with within any organization. It would be sort of silly to to think that it might not have that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I certainly know that I made a contribution, but it was the collective contribution of the different combinations of people over the years that that really made a difference. And um I, I reflect fondly on uh, on those relationships and on those contributions because, you know, whether it was overcoming challenges like hosting hosting the big conference with thousands of people on the weekend that all the power went out in two thousand three, or which is a whole other podcast maybe on its own, but but um, you know, publishing the the books like the Foundations of Professional Personal Training, which has been so influential in, in so many people's lives as fitness professionals. Um, I'm just very grateful for, for having had that opportunity. And mm-hmm. I see it as something that, that yes, to, to answer part of your question, uh, I do use it as a context um, from, from which I can leverage, you know, some of my coaching. Uh, there are many uh, small and medium-sized businesses that have approached me since my departure from CanFit Pro who said, hey, can you help us, you know, do what you did at CanFit Pro or, can I hire you as a coach to help me build this part of my business? Because I know you did that at Catholic Pro. And, um, and I see that as a, as a great nod towards, you know, what we accomplished. And, and Canfer Pro is an important organization. I think that um, there is an opportunity for other organizations to play uh, at least equally as, as big a role. But I think in Canada, because of the population, I think that um, there's, there's not a, it's not a very big pond. And Canfor Pro is is currently the big fish in that pond, so there's not a lot of space. But I think that um, it's up to individuals, maybe some of the listeners of this podcast, that that will say, you know, well, why not me? Why don't I create something else? And and I think some people out there will do that. That will either complement or compete with what Canfor Pro has done and is doing. So, the indestructible human, which is your personal brand. In a sense, trying to help transform people's lives and give business coaching. What what do you feel um, is the fire that's um, being stoked in you by doing that? What, what does that serve you you to do? You know, the name of of that brand, Indestructible Human, 
you know, some people look at that and say, oh, is this about, you know, building big muscles and being really strong and resilient? And, you know, they look at some of my, my, um, the things I've done, like Ironman and, and so on. And, and, and I say, well, yes and no, because ultimately the indestructible human is the person within us, that best version of ourselves that we all have the capacity and potential to be and to become that most of us may never actually fully realize. Mm. And, you know, I think that it is more about the journey and the, and the, the struggle and the effort that is put towards being the best version of ourselves that, that many of us who are seeking that are, um, are continuing to, to, to go through. And I think that it's an obligation on, on our parts. Those of us, yourself, myself, some of the people that, that you've interviewed, like Todd Durkin and, and others that, you know, it's, it's an obligation that we have that if, if we figured even a little bit of this stuff out, we have an obligation to help others do the same. And sometimes we do it on a stage in front of hundreds or thousands of people. Sometimes we do it in written word in a book or an article. And sometimes we do it when people listen to a podcast like this. And, you know, I think that we all, all of us have an opportunity to, uh, to be a coach and to be coached. And, um, it's, it's almost a moral obligation to, uh, to do that because that's the only way the world is going to be a better place is if those with resources, with information, with education, pass it on to others. So mm -hmm. that's really what that's about. You shared uh, a post a few weeks ago, uh, with your community about, you know, your frustrations with how, uh, you know, youth are. Or maybe almost lost to a certain degree now um share a little bit with uh, the listeners you know what you're feeling there and what you feel we need to do to change things you know i, I appreciate you asking me about that because it's something that is still very fresh in my mind and my heart because uh as some if not all of the the listeners would know is that, you know there was a recent um attack in toronto where um a disturbed individual took it upon themselves to get into a van and drive that van onto the sidewalk and, and murdered uh, 10 people and, and permanently changed the lives of dozens of others that were there and, and all of their friends and family beyond that and, and the community at large. And, you know, that was, that was certainly the catalyst at the time when I posted that on, uh, on Facebook, but really there's a, there's a stirring within me, that uh, I think, again, many of us, I think, feel the same thing, which is there's got to be more that we can do. And I think at times we focus in on a particular group, whether it's, uh, in this case, it's young men, um, but it can also be young women. It can be, you know, people of any uh, gender or ethnic background or belief system or whatever. But, but in this case, it was that post was about uh, in particular, the young people and, and even more particularly the young men of our society that seem to be, in some cases, lost um, or losing their way. And, th and I don't want to overgeneralize because I think that there are some tremendously powerful, resourceful young people who are, who are already making big changes in the world in a positive way. But I think what we're seeing is um, a portion of this next generation losing their way for a number of different reasons. And I think that, that we have an obligation to, um, to at least talk about it and make it part of the conversation that we all have, if not actually do something more about it. And I'm not sure yet what my role will be. I've actually had a few conversations with people since then who have either reached out to me or, or expressed support or interest. And I think one of the micro groups within the larger group of young people are the young people found in our indigenous communities. And uh, I have a, a lot of difficulty around, you know, understanding how, um, how we got to where we are as it relates to our indigenous communities and what responsibilities we all have as a society to uh, help make it better. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think that's something that we, we need to be talking about more. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, and it hit a hit a a nerve for me as well because I've you know seeing some of the things that have gone on in North America, 
uh, in the last uh, few years, you know, with some of the shootings and, and et cetera, and, and children going into schools and killing other children. And I just, I get frustrated with the, the level of despondency in our, in some of our youth. And I, question why it's happening it's interesting there's a book um, well worth a read that i'm reading right now that my brother gave me to never number of years ago as a teacher called um hold on to your kids and it's really about the concept of uh, how children form attachment and to their parents mm-hmm. and that when they lose the attachment uh, to their parents and it gets shifted into an attachment with their peers especially at younger ages uh, they start to make poorer and poorer decisions that are associated with, you know, what their peers influence them to do don't necessarily have their best interest at heart. And it's a, it's quite a powerful book on as a parent maintaining and creating, you know, that attachment. And, you know, you and I are part of a generation of kids who grew up with, it sounds like you're the same where your mom was kind of the, the all knowing grounding person, uh, even though your parents' relationship was broken up, et cetera. But nowadays it seems like with parents, both working and a lot of daycare and lots of other things going on, which we all have to deal with. And I do myself, uh, it becomes harder and harder to create and maintain those attachments with our parents. So that, that I find is, is one of the, the elements, uh, certainly not all of the elements that are contributing to is just how our society has changed in terms of how kids grow up, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I would say that, uh, I appreciate you sharing that book with me. I'll share another book with you, which is the the book Spiral Dynamics, mm-hmm. um, which has been massively influential to me in the last about ten years, because it's uh, it's a model that describes how we progress through our lives, and it's it's descriptive not only of of any individual life, but also um, the lives of communities and nations and so on Mm -hmm. but um you know when you look at this kind of situation and let's you know sort of take a generic situation of a teenager uh let's just say a teenage boy who commits uh an unspeakable act of violence you know being a school shooter or something like that um that behavior certainly is the is the most awful abhorrent behavior that one might think of uh, or close to what one might think of. Um, but it's not without its understanding because we all go through our lives in much, a, a, much a similar arc as each other. And it might be slightly different, you know, person to person by age and, and life conditions and so on. But like that they there is a there's a necessary split or or pushing away from the the parental tribe or the family tribe towards forming one's own tribe or connecting with other tribes and i use that term tribe sort of in air quotes because it's you know it's not the not the universally best term but i think it's a term that we all we tend to to use fairly easily Mm um and at that age, that formative age where you're trying to create your own identity outside of the family or outside of the, the tribe that you've been part of for so long for your childhood, there is a, there's a desire to be with other people who share the same ideas or that will lead you because they have an idea that you, you align with that uh, is, is powerful and attractive enough. Mm-hmm. And the positive manifestation of that will be things like sport where um, a a teenager is attracted to a sport where there is a coach who is their leader and a team captain who is another leader who, and they're surrounded by like-minded people who are working towards what, what some would call, and and in the spiral dynamics community, we call the superordinate goal, which is the, the big, big goal we can all agree to, even if we don't always agree on everything else. And, um, and that's the positive manifestation in sport. And sometimes it, it's also related to other activities. So if your thing isn't sports, but it's science, and you find a group of like-minded science, I don't want to say geeks or nerds in a, in a negative way, but, but you know, science, people who are passionate about science, well, maybe that's your tribe. Um, and so there can be very, very positive manifestations of that. 
But there are, unfortunately, an increasing number of young people who aren't finding their tribe because they're becoming socially uh, disconnected because of, in some cases, because of social media. And so when they do find a tribe or a tribe finds them, and uh, in the case of this, this attack in Toronto, it's this incel, the involuntary celibate community, um, it's this sense of, well, let's blame somebody else about what we're feeling or going through. And if you can get enough people wrapped around an idea, uh, even the most terrible idea, well, it feels good to be part of something. And it's not a sport, it's something violent and something terrible. And so there's, there's an understanding of that. It doesn't excuse it, it doesn't, you know, allow it in any way. But it explains that all young people will seek to either create their own tribe or in most cases to join another tribe that makes them feel strong and powerful. And especially in the case of young boys and young men, it's, it's an identity of where can I exert my strength exert my ego my identity and um and feel like i'm like i belong Mm -hmm. and sadly it's uh it's in these negative ways and and um i think that what we need to create i think sport is a tremendous uh vehicle to 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 steer away from that but i think we need to create even more opportunities uh to include people in different other activities with different other leaders and mentors that will um, help them form positive uh, manifestations of, of that desire to create their identity. I like what you're talking about for sure. Um, I think the journey uh, that you and I are on is uh, not dissimilar. And I think our paths will continue to cross as we go along here um, with different things. And I sort of want to let you know that I'm happy to help in any way, shape or form with those things as you move forward and maybe share ideas as we, as we grow as people and hopefully we can create an influential influential change that makes a difference for some of these kids for sure. Well, I I appreciate that because I I think we are like-minded and passionate about many of the same things. And uh, I think that, you know, in the same sort of model of progressive maturation and and development of consciousness, I think that we're roughly at the same stage of, of life and, and, um, and development. And, and it's, it is a desire to find answers. It's a desire to find clarity and to make sense of things. And if within that context of making sense of things, we can make the world a better place and that feeds a portion of our soul, which is, it's not about money. It's not about position or ego. It's, it's about contribution and, um, a selfless contribution, which I think happens when, you know, for both of us, when we're, when we're either approaching or, or, or at that sort of mid-century mark and age that we start to, to look at, you know, it's a natural questioning of what's mm-hmm. life about and what have we done so far and what's left to do. Mm-hmm. And um, th- there's a term, uh, you know, connecting to that superordinate goal, which is a big goal we can all agree to. Um, there's another term that I like, uh, which is uh, becoming better known, which is called hyperprosociality which when you break it down, it's hyper pro sociality, which is the notion that together we can create a lot more than we can separately. Mm-hmm. And I think something like this podcast that you've created and, and the tribe or community that is created because of this and the separate other tribes that, you know, we all come from and belong to, I think coming together and creating the kinds of things that will make the world a better place is, is part of our calling. And I think that we're, we're either going to do it and fulfill that destiny or we're not and feel that we should have. So I think let's just go for the former and not the latter. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. And we're both shaved head guys. So we should get along. (laughs) We we don't need to worry about bedhead or, you know, spending time styling our hair. So we we can just get to business. Right. So (laughs) I'll spend all that money that I would spend on shampoo and something else. Um, I'm going to end with asking you um, sort of a, a closing question around um, as I do with all my guests leaving a mark, what's your, what you would like people to, when you've gone for this earth, speaking of what you just spoke about, um, what do you hope people remember about you or, or how they remember you? You know, I, I've played with that question a little bit over the years. Uh, certainly when my dad passed away uh, four years ago, and uh, since then, as I've had a few other relatives go through health issues and 
um, you know, when you when you get those brushes with mortality, you tend to to become more introspective about those things. And and initially, my thought was around, you know, I want people to remember me for you know something, you know, and and there's a few different things I I might have have wanted at the time. Um, I've I've simplified it a little bit since then, and I'm sure it will continue to evolve uh, for whatever number of years I have left on this planet. Hopefully, many. That number one. Um, I want my children to be good people because I think from a legacy perspective, that is the the best indicator that we did the best job that we could as parents is that our, our children become good people because if we gave them the right boundaries and uh, values and uh, belief systems that then they created themselves using those as some kind of initial framework, then that's that's a great testament to our legacy. Beyond that, I would say it's it's not as important to me that my name be known, that my accomplishments be known, as much as um, the the results of those things be felt. And if that's something that I wrote, or someone that I coached who went on to to do something great, or um, you know somebody who attributes something they learned from some guy at some conference, and that happened to be me. If they went on to do something great, then then I'd be happy with that. Because the truth is, Scott, you know, I'm not going to be around to say, hey, that was me. You should have credited me or anything like that anyway. So <laughs> what, what I really want is the world to be a better place because I showed up. And and if that happens, it doesn't matter to me if I'm the one that gets the credit. Cool. Rod, uh, thanks for taking the time to sit and chat with me for an hour. I know you're a busy human being like we all are, but, uh, the opportunities to sit down. I mean, that's the reason why I started this podcast is, uh, it gives me a chance to sit down with guys like you who are doing really important and, uh, powerful things, uh, and get to learn about why you're doing them and where it comes from. So I hope it's, uh, been useful for you. And, uh, and I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. So thank you very much for giving me your time. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, Scott. And, and, you know, I think that we are aligned on a lot of different things that I think many of the guests are that, that you've had on the podcast. And I think you're doing incredible work. And, and I think, you know, interviewing the people that you have has, is, a, is a great way to spread knowledge and insight and information. And, and uh, it's a real pleasure to have been part of it. So thank you very much. Thanks, man.